Welcome to the Training of Crosses, where we look at faith and practice through the lens of the Bible. I'm Mason Simmons. Matthew Thompson. And I'm Ted Regans. <laughs> I think I just make y'all uncomfortable. I try to make things a little bit sideways, so it's a little different, but... Mason over here innovating, where no innovation was needed. No, there was none needed, but I was just like, hey, we well, were talking about spice, and why not just... Throw a little, little you were definitely throwing a curveball into my already dyslexic brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So now, now the expectation is on Tanner to mix it up next time because I, I did the um, what, what's his name? The guy that like does the Are You Ready to Rumble? Is it Gene? Gene Okerlund? Dude, I don't know the dude's name. Whatever. Some, I just know it's, it's some just wrestling legend. I, I did that the, the pro wrestling intro last week. Now, now we got Mason switching up the the words. So Tanner, you you've got a week. Figure out figure out something beautiful. Wow us. <laughs> the expectations are really high right now. Yeah. The expectations are really high. The the bar the bar is going to be hard for me to reach. You know who sure. else the the expectations are high for? Jesus, because he's he's going to pull some stuff here in John chapter thirteen as we read that uh, it takes a lot of people off guard. Peter especially. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we get into the text, we'll, we'll be learning a lot about what it means to be a servant and more specifically what it means to be Christ-like. Mm-hmm. So we're in John chapter 13, in case you didn't know, in case you didn't read the title that Matthew's going to put on there. But John chapter 13. And this is actually, uh, you know, following what happened in 12. Lo and behold, <laughs> what? You know, 12 <laughs> and 13. Oh, shocker. But uh, so in, in past 12... Uh, Jesus and, and was having a party with Lazarus and they had some foot washing going on with Mary. But the thing is, though, we got some more washing of the feet. So here in uh, verse one, we have a statement that says, you know, before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And I, I think this is an interesting verse to break down. First yeah, of all. <laughs> there's a lot in that one verse. Yeah. My goodness, what a densely packed verse. Oh, so first of all, we've kind of already discussed uh, the way that John's been going. It's coming, it's being funneling down crunch time-wise. Because, you know, when it first started in John, it started his ministry, and it seems like a, a longer span of time has been crunched down to a shorter span of time as the chapters have gone on. You know, it seems like as the chapters have in the, in the book is coming to a close, that it seems like time is coming to a close as well for Jesus' time on earth. So here, it's 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 crunch time. It's like the day before him being, uh, or a couple days before him actually being executed. A couple days before, or a day before he's actually accused and, and betrayed. Here, I want to point out one thing. Uh, a couple things, actually. One of the things I want to point out is that statement, have loved his own. And I want to say, of course, Jesus loves everybody. For God so loved the world, the world, the whole thing, you know, God loves all. But he has a special love for those who are his own. Now, when he says loved his own, what does that even mean when you talk about his own? What do you guys think? Because I, I have two there could be two possible answers, but I'm not sure exactly which one it could be. It could be either or. I feel like the options that you have in mind when you say that are, A, people who believe in him, and B, his disciples. That was exactly what I was going to say, actually. <laughs> okay. Okay, then no, there's a have? third option. Uh, there's a third option. Oh, oh. I didn't think about the disciples. I thought about the Jews, because, you know, he says, you know, oh, you should preach mm, to the Jews first mm, and then Gentiles. Okay. So I don't, I mean, that could be three possible answers. There, but I didn't think about the disciples, but yeah, I think, well, it could be just a, a trifold thing. I guess it could be the disciples. It could be a trinity. Oh, so the Bible coming back all around. <laughs> at the risk of opening a can of worms, I'm going to be honest. I still don't know how I feel about what you have in the notes there. A special love for those who are his own. 
Yeah. What? I don't know. I, I, mean, I don't know if it's safe for me to say I don't know if I agree <clears throat> with that because I don't, I don't have even the beginnings mm-hmm. of an argument against it. I just don't know how I feel about that phrasing. So do you elaborate to me yeah. what you mean by that. So that is a very, I think, a dicey place you can you can go one way or the other that can be very uh, detrimental to a character to the character of Christ. But when I say that, I'm thinking obviously when and this is where I think that it comes a, a, a bad commodity the way that we've been kind of perceived is that us as Christians, we know that there is something that we have that those that do not believe. I mean we have the salvation through Christ's blood, correct? And that's a gift that is just the best gift in the world that the Son of God himself and, and came down to do for us. That's amazing. But the thing is, I think over time, churches and Christians have placed that as like a prideful banner to place over their lives, saying, well, I'm just better than everybody because God has done this for me. No, but it should be a humble thing to say, I'm not worthy of this. So what I'm saying is that, yes, we as believers, we have this gift, but we don't deserve it. There's too many people that I think that say, yes, I have this gift, and it's mine, and I deserve it. They're not putting humility first. They're putting pride first. And in that, in that case, it becomes almost tainted in that sense. So if you want to weigh those that will believe versus those that won't believe, yeah, of course, Christ is going to work a little bit more with those that believe, give them gifts of, uh, of spirit, spiritual gifts and stuff like that. He's not going to call an atheist to preach. I'm sorry, that doesn't work. So he's going to call those who believe and answer to his call to preach or to sing or do whatever calling is necessary. So I think there's there's certain gifts and special things that Christ gives to those that believe versus the, those that don't believe. I agree in essence with what you're saying, mm-hmm. but I guess the argument that I would put forth is an alternate, alternate wording of that. I would say, and I feel like, again, this is pretty agreeable. I mean, God, for God, so loved the world, right? So, I mean, Jesus loves everybody. I wouldn't necessarily say uh, that he has a special love, but more that the people that are his own in in that, like, people that believe in him get to take a special advantage of his love that non-believers yes. don't. And, and I think it, it, it is all in wording. Because, yeah. obviously, this is the type of wording that I would not, that it should be only discussed within, I think, a, a fellowship of brothers. Because then it's, because then it's, if we have this type of wording in context, outside that it's almost like we are placing ourselves better than everybody else but that's not the case i mean here we see that jesus is basically putting himself lower than everybody else here in the future and that's one thing like the statement that i say next is that uh in, in my notes it says jesus has done some things for all men such as sacrificing himself for the sins of all of all of humanity he also has done all things for some men so he does all things and seeing, you know, place them up and in, in, into glory by believing them. So he has done all, all things for some men. And so it's just interesting that I think there's there's a certain dialogue that we need to be careful about talking with believers and non-believers about this concept of doing things for humanity. Especially if you, if you count the, the free will aspect. Tan, when Tanner brought up, Jesus loves everyone. And but when you try to say Jesus loves his own, people start saying, "Well, like if he loves if he loves his own, he doesn't love everyone." Well, no. Let me let me put it like this because this is how I like to imagine things. We say we love God, and the love that we have for God, a true of a true Christian, is going to be you have dedicated your whole life to that. 
you have dedicated your whole life under the, the belief of God, and you have lived your life according to how God has wanted you to do it. But you also, you two being married men, have a love for your wife. You live with your wife. You, you know, make your life decisions with your wife. But then we also come into this room and we say we have brotherly love and we have friendships and we do things together, but we don't have you, we don't have the same love that y'all do for your mm -hmm. wife yeah. and y'all don't have that same love you do for God that you live your whole life for. So when people try to say, oh, yeah, Jesus loves the whole world, but he can't love his people more. Well, no, because we're the same way. Yeah, it's like it's, a, it's you're exactly right. I think analogy that I think you said with like a family thing. It's like Matthew may be my cousin and I love him. And I would do anything for him, but yet my love for my wife, which is a little bit more immediate because we have been joined in union, there's certain benefits that she gets that Matthew does not. But I think to, to finish that uh, first verse, he says he loved them to the end. Well, now, what do you think about this statement? Because I think, you know, he would love them not only at the end of his earthly life, but at the end of the uttermost time. So what do you think this really means in the sense that he, he uh, having loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end? So do you think this is just talking about a temporal time of him on earth, or is this talking about more of the uttermost parts of the end of time? I mean, obviously it can be taken in several different ways, as most scripture can be, but I feel like the most immediate impact that that uh, scripture has is in regards to him dying on the cross. Because, I mean, you have him, like, forgiving people as he's being nailed to it, for goodness yeah. sakes. Um, so I think... Like, that makes me think of Judas personally, which, I mean, his betrayal hasn't come up in Scripture yet, although we will be tackling it in this chapter. Um, Actually, it's the next verse. But... Well, yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> so so that that's how that hits me, like, at face value when reading initially. Like, it just pops Judas right in my head. Be like, yeah, he's going to betray uh, Jesus, but Jesus still loves him. Mm -hmm. So continuing on, uh, now we're talking a little bit about the Judas and the devil. So uh, two and three, we have that the supper has finally come, you know, and they're, they're dining together, the disciples in Christ. You know, it's this kind of closed group of the followers, and they're having dinner together. And I want to also set this up in the way that they've had dinner, okay? It's not like we have dinner today of Thanksgiving dinners, and it's just a big old table full of uh, bountiful food, and everyone's just kind of sitting very, you know, shoulder-length apart, yada, yada, yada. But the way that the first century Jews and the way that they had supper was that they basically laid on their stomachs or on their sides sometimes or in a U-shaped fashion around like a, a, a different small bowls of food, bread, dips, uh, little meats, and, and yada, yada, yada. So that's kind of a very intimate type of uh, meal that they're having together. Like they're basically leaning over. Later we get to see that people are leaning on each other in this whole thing. So it's a very close-knit type personal meal that we're having here. This isn't something that's very distant. Like the is it in the Sistine Chapel where Leonardo da Vinci painted the, the Last Supper? I am not educated enough on okay. these matters. Well, I believe it's the Sistine... The, the 16th or... Sistine. Sistine. <laughs> not to be confused with the other 15. Yeah. The Sistine Chapel... I believe it's that one learning Leonardo da Vinci, the last supper where Jesus has hands out and stuff like that. People are just pointing at so it's not like that. This yeah, is I was about to say, personal. don't you know, Tanner, they they just got a twenty four seater table but only used one half of it so the photographer could get a Yeah, that's exactly what they did. Of them and all yeah. the glorious brightness. <sighs> yeah. So um here verse two we get to Judas. 
the betrayer. Okay, and I think it's we've already made comment before that throughout this chapter, it seems like John every time that Judas pops up, John's like the betrayer. This is the guy that we're making sure that this is the guy that. I'm reminding the reader that this is the guy that betrays. So verse 2, it says, Now when it came time for the supper, the devil had already put it in his heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. So I think this is interesting, that it seems like before the supper even happened, and before this time of Judas actually betraying, the devil seemed like it was his intention. He already had his mind set up to use Judas. So I thought that was very interesting. And so it seems like the... The heart was already being contorted and twisted to betray Jesus before the actual betrayal. Hardened, one might say. Hardened, we'll say. Yeah, it was brought up in the last chapter. Yes. So, I I, I want to I want to ask you this: Do you think? And I I think it could have been. I, I think it could have been this. But yet, do you think it could have been any disciple? Could have been any disciple. Did, did it have to be Judas? I think it could have been any disciple. Yeah. Yes. Which yeah. I, I think we've actually touched on this before. How um, I think I, I used the phrase holy contingencies. Yeah. Like they're, um, it didn't have to be Judas. Like the plan would have been enacted no matter what. This just happens to be the way that it all panned out. Well, I, I put in my notes, and I think this is a very accurate description of how the devil works is that the devil is like water. He finds the path of least resistance. Yeah. I mean, to believe in free will is to believe that it didn't have to be mm-hmm. Judas, in my opinion. But I like what you said, like the path of the easiest way. And if you go to other scriptures, it talks about how, um, I believe it's First Peter, how he's like a lion, you know, seeking who he may devour. Well, a lion always seeks after the weakest link, mm-hmm. usually the young one or, you know, something like that, like a, a, the smallest and most vulnerable in the pack. Well, if you've read through what we've seen so far in Judas throughout John, you know, he he had some greed and pride to him that always set up inside him. And like we read, especially in the last chapter, how he was always, you know, kind of taking from the money pot as it was already. So he was, even though he was out with Jesus and preaching, you know, the gospel, he was still stealing from literally Jesus. And I mean, all these other things. So he had already had it set up inside of him. And I mean, it's just kind of like, oh, well, there's someone already got his leg out. Let me just snatch him. You know, so I think. You're right. It was just the easiest link to go after because he was already in a sinful life. Well, then later on, we haven't gotten to this part yet, but yet Jesus says to Peter when he assigns, you know, on this church that I will build, you know, you will now be known as Cephas, Peter, the rock. Jesus tells Peter, the devil wanted you. He says, the devil wanted you and I wouldn't allow him to have you. And so he fought to keep to have Peter stable because I I could see some weak links of Peter too. Oh yeah, you see his anger show out all the time, and we'll see that especially in a few more chapters. Yeah, where, where, where I mean, you could call it the righteous anger because he's trying mm-hmm. to take up for Jesus, but I mean, you can still see how easily his mind got altered, and he, you know he wasn't stable in a lot of situations, especially when uh, diverse not diversity but uh, chaos arose. Mm-hmm. Arose. So I think that's very interesting. I might be making much ado about nothing here, but um, y'all talking about Judas being the, the 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 keeper of like the money money box, which I mean we established last chapter as it said in scripture. That makes me think of uh, I think Paul said uh, that the love of money is the root of all evil. Mm-hmm. Kind of that hits different when you think that. I mean, I'm I'm sure it wasn't all of his reasoning, but I mean Judas did literally sell Jesus out. The love of money was the root of the worst evil that happened to humanity. But yet it's funny. It's it's very it's a paradox because the worst thing that ever happened to humanity was 
God dying, but the best thing for humanity was God dying for sins of humanity and raising again. So it's 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 like yeah. like because it was God's plan from the beginning, it it, it was a good thing. It's going to happen either way. Thing. But the fact that that could happen, yeah. is pitiful. <clears throat> So I think it's very interesting, too. I think verse 2 and 3 is, is a contrasted verse. So here in verse 2, it, it talks about the betrayal of Christ and the the heartbrokenness we see that's like, you know, the plan that the devil set out in motion to destroy Christ, to destroy God, and to be the winner over humanity. In verse 3, it basically contradicts that statement verse 3 says jesus knew that the father had given everything into his hands that he had come from god and that he was going back to god so it's basically saying yeah the devil may have may think that he may have it win and he may uh win this fight but yet guess what there's a contrast to that that god has given everything to the son's hands and the son's hands to the father's hands and that everything that was set into motion will be fulfilled and will come to him yeah, the language used in verse 3 where it says he had come from God and that he was going back to God, like the, the language used there gives the, the firm assertion that, like, death is not the end. Like, that Jesus is going to conquer death in the grave. So, I mean, it doesn't even bring up the, the word death. It's just like he, he's going back to God. Like, mm -hmm. simple as that. It's just part of the plan. Well, I also want to point, we, it brings that out later on, but yet it, this, this is, I think, a, a clear picture of the prophecy in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The prophecy there and Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 this is where you know Adam and Eve have sinned against God and there's a prophecy of the Redeemer and it, this is what it said this is what it says in Genesis 3 chapter verse 15 I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and this is where the prophecy is fulfilled he will strike your head and you will strike his heel so it's basically saying that death or the devil you may strike the heel of man but he will crush your head. So it's basically a, a, a battle between uh, the devil and God himself. But yet, guess what? A snake over a hill, I mean, it's going to crush him every time. And that's what it's saying here is that in verse 2 and 3, it's showing that contrast again like it is in Genesis chapter 3. It's like, yeah, the devil may think he has a grasp on it, but yet in the end, God gets the glory and it's going to crush the head. So next up, we're going to tackle the... Subject of feet washing, which is a, a wonderful subject for we three being uh, free will Baptists, and we'll get into the significance of that uh, denomination with this practice. But first, let's I'll uh, read verses four through eleven, and then we can uh, discuss it as a whole. Starting verse four, it says, "So he got up from supper, laid aside his robe, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord." Are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterward you will know. You will never wash my feet, ever, Peter said. Jesus replied, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who has bathed, bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, you are not all clean. <clears throat> so what do we want to tackle for open? I mean, that's nothing big. It's just, here's another instance of where, like, Peter just kind of flips back and forth. You know, he's, he's trying to, I guess, 
he means it in a good way when he says, Jesus, like, you're not going to wash me. Because I, I, I really want to believe that Peter's trying to say, like, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to wash me. Like, don't worry about it. Like, that's what I've always heard. And I, I really firmly believe that that's kind of how Peter was meaning that when like like you know you can't wash me like like don't don't worry about that like i can wash myself but then he goes jesus is like well if i don't wash you you don't have any part of me and then just real quickly peter's like okay no i'm like wash my hands too and then if you want to wash my head that'd be pretty cool mm-hmm. uh and peter just goes you know he he flips that switch over again yeah and i respect where peter's coming from there because you can you can really like you can hear the gears turning in his head like it's another one of those examples uh we've seen a couple times in scripture already where people are clearly like they're trying their best to grasp like the meaning behind jesus's words but either they read too far into it or they don't read it all into it and and you have a lot of failure uh to really get those wires crossed the right way because you see jesus he's wanting to wash feet and i mean peter's not dumb i mean He's got his dumb moments, but he's not overall a dumb guy. You got to keep in mind, he's been traveling with Jesus a lot. So, like, he he's not ignorant uh, in the way that, honestly, like a lot of us would be because he's literally just spent more time physically with Jesus than, like, anyone, more or less. So, he, by default, I would imagine he has a greater understanding of what Jesus means mm-hmm. when he speaks than the average individual. Uh, so, keeping that in mind, if Jesus is out here going to wash some feet, like, Peter, I, I can I can sort of imagine, like, being in his shoes or sandals what have you, where he's thinking, okay, Jesus wants to wash my feet. This is a test. This is a test. Of course, this is a test. This this is Jesus. He, he's he's my king, my Lord. I, I can't let him wash my feet. So he's like, are you going to wash my feet? No, you you can't do that. I'm, all right, I pass the test. I pass the test. I, was, I would also think he would be uncomfortable because it's like, oh, yeah. He's, yeah. I'm supposed to be serving him. He's exactly. my master. He's my exactly. teacher. Like, uh, what are you doing? And so let's, let's go back to that sense of, like, if you're setting that hierarchy of, like, I need to be the one that's serving you, this is a definitely a flip-flop of what, a counterculture of what is supposed to be done. Mm-hmm. So I think he definitely does feel uncomfortable. And because of that, he thinks, okay, this is a test, which I don't think it's... Like, Hmm. Well, I'm just saying, like, it could I, be a test, but then I'm, I don't think it was. I don't think it's Oh, a yeah, really I agree. Test. I'm saying this is probably where Peter was coming yeah. from. Because then when Jesus flips that script <laughs> in a... Verse eight, he says, uh, "If I don't wash you, you have no part with me." Then, then Peter's sitting there going, "Like, oh man, I can still recover this. I can still pass this test." Mm-hmm. All right, well, Jesus, don't just wash my feet. Wa- wash more than my feet. Like he wants, he wants to go all in. He tries he, to Jesus, ju- Jesus. Yeah, I mean, he's he's this uh, reads to me like he he's seeking approval here. Like he wants to do well. Yeah. Like he's he's putting his all into this attempt. But the problem was he wasn't supposed to think that hard about it. It's just like let the man wash your feet. And, and also with with you know, the way that we know that Peter is, he's very prideful. Oh yeah. And so so I I want to say that he's like, when he says, "Oh, wash my whole body," he's like, "I got it. I got one up on the other guys." Like it's like I understand what you're trying to get at here, Jesus. Yeah. I get the test. I know what you're saying. So just wash my whole body, and Jesus is just a big old face palm, like, <sighs> "No, Peter, <laughs> Peter, come on. Why you be like this?" Yeah, but it's it's cool too. It's like Peter is one of the closest people with God. With Christ, he's the one that basically sets up the church. Whoa, 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 Tanner, 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 listen here. What, which book are we reading right now? The book written by the beloved disciple. All <laughs> okay. right, all right. <laughs> we know. Listen, we know that John is daggum humble because he he. he well, hold on. Imagine yeah, writing yourself the beloved. But yeah, he does. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. <laughs> he tries, but he was he also threw on some. Books but the thing out. is, though, Jesus did instruct. John, the beloved, to take care of his mother. So, I mean, to me, that's a special responsibility. But needless to say, we know that Peter is very prideful. 
And but the thing is though is that even with he has such he, he has been through so much with Christ that he he casted out devils and he witnessed the transfiguration between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And he walked on water with Jesus. I mean, this dude basically I, I don't want to say he could do no wrong, he did a lot wrong, but yet this dude was had some special stuff happen in his life. But Jesus is like, I still gotta wash your feet, dude. I mean, you're not clean. Yeah, Peter definitely had a lot more high moments mm-hmm. than most of them but like you said he also had probably some lower moments than most of them too i mean peter was the embodiment of high risk high reward oh absolutely because i mean he was constantly like going all in on everything like he did nothing in half measures i mean say what you want about peter but like he he always gave 110 percent, including on when he screwed up and when when peter tries to jesus juke jesus jesus ends up Jesus, Jesus, Jesus juking Peter. Jesus juke. It's like a juking, juking, juke, juke. Tongue twister. Let's just say that. <laughs> let's just say Jesus threw out the, the the threw down the mic. If it was twenty ten, I'd say jukeception, but it's not twenty ten. It's not twenty ten. But it's not about cleaning the whole body. He says. Jesus says, "Listen, Peter. It's not about cleaning yourself because we've already, you've already cleaned yourself. You know, your 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 feet are dirty. You've walked inside the house. It's not about cleaning your whole body." But it's about giving a representation of a clean and pure heart. And I think that, and he makes mention here, he says, you know, one out of the 12, one, one out of 12 of y'all is not clean, he says. He says, you know, y'all hearts are clean. I'm doing this representation of cleaning, but yet one of you guys are not clean. Not all of y'all are clean. So it's like, oh, which one is it? Which one is it? But let's talk a little bit about the, this foot washing thing, because I think it's important. I, I, I really do think it's important. So, we see Jesus as the suffering servant, correct? We know that he is a servant, and he has basically come down to serve. And we see this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53, which I highly recommend going and reading, because it's basically a spitting image of the synoptic gospels of Christ. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just a, a mere reflection. So I believe that setting, I believe that this, this feet washing thing is, is the best example for us uh, to observe, and Jesus prepares to wash feet. I think this is I, th- I thought this is kind of interesting. So, what did Jesus do? The first thing he did, he Jesus rose from the table in place uh, of rest and comfort. Correct. And we've already said that the, the way this table is presented, I mean, they're laying on their side, on the stomach. They're very comfortable in a way of rest and comfort. And I think this also reflects that Jesus rose from his throne in heaven, a place of rest and comfort. Jesus also laid aside his garments taking off his covering, taking off his overcoat, you know. But then Jesus laid aside his glory, taking off his heavenly covering. It's almost like a par- we get some parallels here. And then we get Jesus took a towel and girded himself, being ready to work. Jesus took the form of a servant and came ready to work. And the last thing I think is just very, very important is that Jesus poured out water into a basin ready to clean. Jesus poured out his blood to cleanse us from from the penalty of sin, I think this this whole story it could it's just it's the whole narrative of Christ coming down, being the servant, cleansing man from uh, from their sins, and 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 taking the penalty of death uh, for us, and being glorified altogether. It's it's just fantastic. I'm I want to preface what I'm about to say with this is a compliment, so bear with me because I don't know if it's going to sound like one at first. But when I was reading your notes uh, about. Um, about that, the representation taking place of all those actions that Jesus was doing. It made me think about being back in like high school uh, English class 
when we're reading stories like uh, Mask of the Red Death, where you're looking at all the different symbolisms for like, ooh, this is the room that something took place in, this color meant this, this foreshadowed this, this also meant this. And I was sitting like, dang, Tanner out here being like a, a high school English teacher. But I mean, that, that meaning is there. Like don't the, give that title to me. I, was, I love English, <laughs> but yet I don't miss English grammar and all that mess. No. Have, have you listened to me talk? Have you listened to me correlate words into a sentence? Listen, you put the effort in. <laughs> effort. I respect that. <laughs> but, well, okay, so there is a lot of, there's, I think, there are some symbolism things here, but yeah, I don't think that was the main reason. I don't, I, I, I pointed those out, but those are just preaching points, you know? But yeah, the thing is, I think Jesus is trying to set an example of like, hey, this is, I'm supposed to serve you, and this is an example that you should do. Right, so next up, uh, getting in more into the topic of foot washing and why we uh, do it as real Baptists, or, well, as as we should as Christians. Hot take. As, as, <laughs> as, as we, I think, us, us three, we try not, we, this podcast, as you know, is, is trying not to be so gung-heavy on one side, because we all have different theological beliefs, yeah. all three of us. We're very different on the yeah. spectrum. But yeah, I think we do stand, all, under three of us, I think, do stand that, I think foot washing needs to be something that we do as a church. The same thing like with communion. So I think that we're going to talk about it, a little bit about it here, why we do it and why we think it's important. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to say, I don't mean to invoke the name of my denomination too many times, even though that was two times too many, to be honest. Cause I mean, when it comes down to like reading through scripture, shouldn't be a denominational thing. Exactly. Like scripture is true. Exactly. Period. So well, let's transcend that and just look at faith and practice through a biblical lens, shall we? Oh, so wait, no, it wasn't that through well, the lens of the Bible. Through the lens, through the lens of, the of the Bible. Oh, that's right. We're training crosses this week. We're training crosses this week. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, verses 12 through 20, we'll read through that. It says, When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his robe, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord. That is well said, for I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done for you. He didn't mean that. He didn't mean that. No, not at all. Verse 16. I assure you, a slave is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen. But the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I assure you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. So here we go. So there's a lot in this uh, section of the chapter, but yet there's a lot to unpack that I think is vital uh, to a Christian service. And not only that, but yet within the, the context of this story that that John is telling of uh, the closing down, closing the doors, getting ready for the great storm of, of the crucifixion. So I think that Jesus, he explains the foot washing was all about. He does this. And him being a teacher, he's also Lord, but yet he is also a servant. So it's kind of interesting that he's Lord and servant at the same time. I mean, that goes back to the upside down kingdom. Yes. Yeah. So and it goes back to that statement of saying, you know, that the master is not greater than the servant. The servant's not uh, greater than the master. You know, there's equality there. So verses 14 and 15, and this is where that we would say that feet washing is just as important as communion or other service traditions or 
things that we do to remember Christ and remember to me when we do all these things. And so I want to point out two different terminologies here. So there's a difference between ordinance and sacraments. Do you guys know the difference between ordinance and sacraments? I do not. Maybe, but big words. Okay. So <laughs> sacraments, sacraments. we as you know, more of a Reformed aspect uh, part of the church don't believe in sacraments. Sacraments, what, what it is, is that it's basically a work way of earning grace through from God. So that's what that's what sacraments are. Is it? It's like like the they call it the Eucharist, the communion. Eucharist. Oh yeah, I've heard that word. Okay, oh, sacrament. I don't know, but Eucharist. <laughs> yeah. So it's basically you know you're uh, so the Eucharist. There's some forms of the Catholic Church that say that when you take part yeah. of the communion, that when it enters your body, that it automatically turns into Christ's blood or Christ's flesh, and it's basically. Christ incarnate coming into your body, and that's a type of saving grace. Yeah, we went over that word uh, that means that. It, it wasn't transubstantiation. Transubstantiation, yes. yes that's, that's a tongue twister for me. Yeah. So that that's that's a sacrament. And I don't, I, and we, uh, to me, the way that I see that grace is applied is through faith alone. For by grace are you saved through faith, it's not of yourselves, for it's the gift of God. That's and I think that you all agree with that, correct? So ordinances, what an ordinance is, is it is a practice that demonstrates the participant's faith. Okay, so it's a practice that is a representation of what they believe and they have faith in. So communion is, in a sense, a ordinance for us that doesn't save us, but yet is important for us to come together and to remember that, hey, this is Christ's blood, you know, a representation of Christ's blood. Remember When you drink this, remember me. Hey, this is this bread, unleavened bread. This represents Christ's flesh, that he broke his body for our sins. Do this in remembrance of me. That's an ordinance. It doesn't save us, but yet it helps us to get back on track and why are we here for service and yada, 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 yada. Feet washing, I think, goes in that category of ordinance. That here in verse 14 and 15, uh, it says... So if I, your Lord teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So is this, some people would say, well, this is just silly. He's just saying hypothetically. He's, he's not talking literally here. But me, I don't mean to be a dispensationalist here, but to me, this sounds very in the sense of like he's asking us to do this in remembrance of him. In verse 15, it says, uh, for I have given you an example that you also should do just I have done for you. So to me, it's just like clear as day of like, it's also a, hey, do this and remember to me, like the communion, but also, hey, do as I do as being a servant of, of lowering yourself down, humbling yourself down, and washing the feet. So what does the washing the feet really mean? So what, what do you guys think? Why do you, we wash feet? Well, at its most base level, and I won't speak on this for too long because I want to hear Mason's thoughts on it. Um, here in verses 14 and 15, it offers a really solid affirmation for what we believe we're supposed to do as Christians, be Christ-like. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have Jesus saying pretty much paraphrasing word for word here, but like he's saying, listen, since I'm your teacher, like you need to do what I do, be, be like me. And since I'm doing this, you also should do this. Mm -hmm. And I, I think at its, at the, the barest bones of the meaning behind that scripture, that that's what it means. Like if for no other reason you should wash feet because Jesus washed feet. Mm -hmm. for those who didn't listen last week like we kind of gave a background of this anyway like normally the lowest of the low in the family the youngest son the youngest you know whatever the servant is supposed to be the one washing the feet so this is of course obviously humbling like humbling ourselves and i think it is really good 
for us, especially as members of a church body, a local church body, to realize none of us are greater than anyone else in here. Yes. Because we can, we should all get down and wash each other's feet because I'm no better than you are. You're no better than I am. We're here for the same reason. Because I think in a lot of times we can see a lot of churches conflict and we might see some splits from here and there. I mean, let's, if we were to, I don't know, I don't know numbers, but I, I would almost be willing to be a betting man to say how much church building activity, such as feet washing or things like this, does churches like that do? Where they are coming together as a body to not only humble themselves before each other, but also to serve one another. But I'd also, to me, implies actual practice. Mm-hmm. Like, are we actually doing things? Now, yeah, the churches that say, no, this is just a, you know, metaphor, like, it's just saying we should serve others. Okay, well, some of those churches might be doing other things to serve others, but, I mean, I'm kind of with you. It says word for word, do as I do, and, you know, I've done this as an example. Yeah. I don't know how more plain that can get, but even then, if you are serving others, okay, what what's it hurt? I know a lot of people don't like <clears> feet. <throat> Tanner hates feet. I don't know about you, Matthew, but personally, I don't really care. Feet don't bother me. So what's it take to get on your knees, humble yourself before someone else, and just wash someone's foot for 30 seconds? I mean, I once, uh, I don't know if you call it a sermon, but I, I did a lesson to the church congregation a couple years ago um, over this. Like it, it was a Passion Week thing leading up to Easter, so it was just covering like the days leading up to Jesus' crucif- crucifixion. And mm-hmm. I had uh, Thursday, which was the... This, this day here, Maundy Thursday, for those that want some fun trivia there. M-A-U-N-D-Y. You can look that up. Um, but <laughs> it brings to mind when uh, when I did it, we, myself and, and my wife started off by, by washing everyone's feet in the room. Uh, Demi uh, took care of uh, all the women. I had I had all the men. We just said like, hey, if you if you're okay with us washing your feet, take take your shoes off, and and we'll we'll come to you with uh, the bowl. And we didn't use like the same bowl for the whole whole thing before anyone like freaks out here. Like we had we had fresh bowls like in front of every chair, so we didn't have like any contamination there going on. But I, I didn't have the foresight to think that after washing like thirty something dudes' feet, ranging from my age to like eighty, that my hands would smell like absolute death so <laughs> i mean you're not wrong so at one but. point in in the lesson slash sermon whatever you want to call it like i was pointing out how uh feet washing isn't this super intimidating thing like anyone anyone can do it like it, it's a humbling thing yes but like it's not something to be scared of doing and i was about to say it's it's not like it's this this terrible thing that's going to infect you and like just to make a point like i i put my hand up to my to my face to like sniff it just to, just to make like a a physical point like see it's not that bad but Oh my word! It was that bad. It smelled terrible. <laughs> and like yeah. I recoiled when I did it and got some. Well, got that could be a spiritual. That could be a spiritual application. Since like you are cleaning someone's feet of grime and filth, but yet you're bearing their burdens by by taking a little bit of their uh, nastiness upon yourself. I think you're trying too hard. There. I am trying. Pull, I'm people, pulling too hard. Just people got stinky feet. feet. <laughs> but okay, so let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about this because I think that some people say that well, this is silly. I think, to be honest, us as Freedom Baptists, we're probably—I think—we're probably one of the few only denominations that does this. One of very, there are others that I know of, but very few, very few. But so let's just—I want to talk about this because I think that it is kind of uh, important. So, John Calvin, one of the biggest reformers with Calvinism and stuff like that, you know. So John Calvin, he's one of the you know one of the reformers of old, you know, and he's the one that started Calvinism. John Calvin, duh. Whoa, whoa, take it or not. 
But a lot of where we get the Freel Baptist beliefs is from Jacob Arminius, and there was actually a conflict between those two dudes. You know, they had a, a, a debate slash court system doohickey thing. But anyways, but John Calvin, he said, he I'm going to paraphrase it, but he basically says that some say that feet, feet washing is a ceremony that is empty and bare and is done in tradition alone, that there's nothing, nothing can come good out of it. It's just an empty ceremony. But the thing is, though, I think that can be applied to any kind of tradition that is done within the church. I think that can be done in communion. Communion can be done wrong in the sense of, like, if you're not taking part in a way that is remembering in, in a sovereignty of God, of Christ, you're doing it wrong. That's why I find, I try to say this as vague as I can, that's why I think taking it not so regularly is more meaningful because you don't get in the habit of it. Sure. Yes. Because there, I mean, we all, I think everyone's trying to get my gist of what I'm trying to say. There are people who do it regularly. And at that point it can just become a habit, like coming to church. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's just time for, it's this, it's time of the service. It's time for us to take communion. But at, at that point, I think it's, some people can take it still and make it very a sacred thing on a weekly basis or, you know, however many times you do it. But it comes very hard when it, once you get in a habit because as yeah. us with humans, we, we like to make habits because it makes a lot, what does it do? It makes life easier. So I think, I think you get very dangerous territories because that is something that is supposed to be one of the most sacred things that we can do. Now we do it quarterly. I want to challenge that Mason. Oh, I want, I want to challenge that because I feel like feet washing is in, a category of like acts to do for Christ that like, I don't think it lends itself to being routine because even if you did do it every week, because I mean, let, I was let, talking let, about communion, but I mean, feet oh, washing can be applied the same. I guess oh, I, I was talking about the same, but feet washing to me, I, anyone can drink some grape juice and eat a cracker. Yeah. Not everyone can like, it, I don't think it's ever going to necessarily be easy and like, no, cause it's a countercultural okay. action by definition. I see what you're saying. Everyone eats and drinks. Every, everyone eats and drinks and stuff like that. And to me, you're just standing there, but yet, and you know, you're you're taking part of the cup, you're eating up the thing. But yet, the feet washing thing—that's a cultural practice that is that we don't do no. More. I don't think you can fake that. Because you could, but yet the thing is, though, I think I think that it, I think it's harder to get in a routine of feet washing than it would be communion. But yet, you can still get in a routine where it becomes empty and bare. I, I can still see how it can still become a routine and be an empty tradition. Any yeah. tradition become empty and meaningless. Yeah, I think it would take a surprising amount of effort to treat feet washing as a routine thing. Like, just by nature, it's always going to have an impact on your week. Because to me, I'm thinking, why in the world am I touching this old guy's gouted Because, I mean, and we just covered this, like, it is a humbling act. Mm-hmm. It's hard to perform it's a humbling active. It's a very active act as routine. Yeah, to be clear, I was... Oh yeah. Specifically talking about communion. Yeah. I mean, any act can become a habit. I mm-hmm. mean, feet washing can oh, become yeah. a habit. Now, would it be as easy? No, because like exactly. you said, it's not as normal. But I mean, if you do anything over a certain period of time, it will become a habit, and no matter shoot, how hard it is. If you manage to make feet washing routine, like kudos to you. I mean, like, honestly, you're doing something like, better than me. Yeah, I, that's one thing I probably wouldn't be too mad about, just because that's not seen. Yeah. Which I know a lot of churches they do. Uh, uh, ordinances like weekly because i know there's some churches they do like communion every sunday to me that can easily be slipped into a tradition that it, it becomes almost very monotonous and no that's meaningless. what I was, but yet, yeah like like i was telling the same before we do it quarterly and i could see it being okay if you do it like once every month I, that's not too uh 
frequently to say, hey, I'm going to lose meaning. But yet, either what you do it. And we can talk about this. It would be a whole different podcast uh, episode. But like communion in itself, the way that it's set up is not meant to be like everyone just sitting in their pews, drinking their one little tiny cup of grape juice. Um, we make it very formal. We do. In this setting. No, it's, yeah, it's completely not formal. It's not formal at all. It's very chill, bro. You know? So, I mean, that, and I think we do it wrong. You know, I think we do communion wrong in the sense of like, in the remembrance, in the sense that's not wrong, but yet the way that it's presented. like We present it very formally. Yeah, I think one of the best times I think I've ever had was when the we had communion with the, uh, some of the uh, young adults uh, one time. And like, we actually had, you know, a good meal. Well, I say a good meal, but it was more than just a piece of cracker and grape juice. You know, we actually had dip. We actually had bread. And we actually kind of eat and talked and talked about it. And it was more than just tradition. So I think actually breaking down and actually communing and talking with each other mm-hmm. is the concept here. But Jesus, he says explicitly, he, he, he says, I have done. But he signals the example towards the attitude and action. Instead of just the repetition. What? Go ahead. What? Just gonna see if you're gonna read the question. What question? You know. Question in your notes. Oh. <laughs> okay. I'll read it. I'll read it. So with with this all with all with all this said and done, we've acknowledged that feet washing is a very humbling act of service. It's very active. And it's a way to set uh, that the statement that Jesus says in verse 16, Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than the master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. So there is no hierarchy in the kingdom of God in the sense of servants and the messengers and children of God. So when it comes to feet washing, would you wash the feet of Donald Trump or Joe Biden? Because, I mean, technically, if they came into our church and you know they took part of our communion or whatnot— would you wash Donald Trump's feet? Would you wash Joe Biden's feet? All right. Greatest task of my life. Let's respond to this without being partisan. <clears throat> All right. That, that's hard. So let's look I at... I don't think so. so let, hey, you shut your mouth. <laughs> I'm capable of this. Through, through God, all things possible. <laughs> so let's look at, like, what the reasoning behind this question is, all right? Mm-hmm. Because let's keep in mind with American politics, we're, we're, I mean, we're super divided right now. Like... If someone has an opinion on politics, it, it it's now it's a loud opinion. Like yeah. you're not gonna find someone who just feels neutral about one or both of those guys. So let's say the average uh, Donald Trump fan probably really doesn't like Joe Biden, and the average Joe Biden fan really doesn't like Donald Trump. Like to absolutely sinful amounts. Let's just be honest here. Like we would we would use that H word on it. Hate. They probably hate the other guy. Mm-hmm. Let's just be real. I mean, that, that's where politics has led us. Sadly, that's real. Yeah, it's a system uh, built by men. So it's going to have worldliness built into it so that that hate comes naturally. Unfortunately, I mean, that, that's just sin in the world. So the meaning behind that question that makes this, this question significant is a lot of people out there, uh, if if Trump came into a church, be like, oh, I can't wait to wash this guy's feet. Like they wouldn't even treat it as like a humbling thing. It, it would be an honor to get to wash his feet, right? Mm-hmm. And a Biden fan would feel the same way about Biden coming and be like, oh my goodness, this this is this is Joe freaking Biden. I'm I can't wait to wash this guy's feet. I, I want to prove to him that I'm loyal because there's that idolization there. Mm-hmm. So acknowledging that you would be capable of washing both of their feet. 
that's humility to mm-hmm. Christ. Oh, for like sure. Like the mentality changes instantly because it's super easy to be like, oh yeah, I'd wash uh, Biden's feet in a heartbeat. But if Trump came to the building, <laughs> well, you ain't gonna find me in that building. But that that comes down to pride. But if you can honestly say within your heart of hearts that if Biden showed up one Sunday and Trump showed up the next and you would wash their feet with equal fervor both times, like that is loyalty to God, not the man. Mm-hmm. That is my nonpartisan answer. Uh, and to be honest, I would agree with that because, I mean, I, I, I truly do believe if God's called us to serve and he's called us to serve whoever and whenever and wherever. Because, I mean, let's be completely honest. Like, it is hard to say yes to that question. It is very difficult. Well, here's where I challenge you. To me, I don't think that's a hard one. Here's a hard one. Here's a hard one for me. Here's a hard one for me. Oh, righteous art thou. Would you wash Judas's feet? That's a hard one for me. Jesus did. Uh, Jesus did. I'm not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. That would be hard knowing what happened, but... Like for I me, can't say yes like, or no. Of course, one, I wouldn't yeah. wash you know either of the two politicians' feet because I mean they're humans like me, like whatever. Well, so was Judas. Well, so was Judas, but Judas also portrayed the, our one and king. So I mean, even we read all throughout John. John still had salty feelings about true, Judas. True. So I mean, don't even try to say you would wash I Joe Biden's Trump's feet. Like well, you you would have trouble with that. But oh, I can wash Judas's feet. Okay. Let me say, let me say this in all the in, in the in the context of saying this is that sometimes Christ has called us to serve even when it hurts. Okay, so there might be sometimes that you may be able you need to do something, but it's going to hurt you mentally, physically, spiritually. In this, well, I don't want to say spiritually, but yet it like man, this person has really hurt me, or this person has 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 hurt me in a way that has hurt my family and it's hurt my feelings, or I just don't like you, but yet. Christ has called me to do something, I'm going to do it. You know, so Christ died for those that hated him. That had to be hard. You know, he was crucified by people that hated him. Oh, I'm not saying that. I, yeah, I'm, not, but, I'm, saying, I'm posing that as, I would find that harder to do than washing one of those dudes' feet. we need to humbly do it in a way. Would I still do it? Yes. But would, like, that would be much harder just knowing, like, what, like, what had happened and everything like that, like what he did. Versus, you know, we've got two politicians. A sacrificial life comes before my personal feelings. And so when it, when it comes, boils it down to it, should I, should we uh, wash Jesus' feet and Joe Biden's feet and Donald Trump's feet? Yes. But that doesn't mean it's not, it's not going to be hard. Jesus did the best suffering servant thing by washing our, our sins away to those that choose to follow him. But yet he said to God in the garden, if it's your will, let this cup pass me. It was still hard. So I, I, yes and yes. I think it is something that Christ has called us to do, be a suffering servant to show humility, but it's not going to be as easy sometimes. And I think that when there might be our human aspect, we need to make sure that our sinful humanity of pride is pushed aside and Christ's humility placed on the forefront of serving. Well, we can talk about what we would do let's go on. for for Judas all day long, but let, let's look at what Jesus does for Judas. So, Mason, you've got your Bible in front of you. How about you read verses 21 through 30, and we'll find out how Jesus decides to treat the betrayer. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed, about who, whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom by... Uh, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. 
John. Wonder which one that was. Hmm. Oh, you already. Okay. Oh, sorry. Wait, <laughs> I, I wanted to say it. Simon Peter therefore mentioned to him, mentioned to him to ask who it was whom he who, whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, "Lord, who is it?" Jesus answered, "It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it." And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, Buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately. And it was night. So to paint a good picture of the, the example that Jesus is putting forth on how to, to treat those, bless those who curse you, as Scripture says. Tanner, how about you give us the significance of giving that dipped bread to Judas? What what did that mean in a cultural sense? So just the, Jew, the Jewish tradition to give a dipped bread to someone was a designated honor, like giving a toast at a banquet. So it's basically Jesus giving a undesignated honor to Judas or to the betrayer saying that you have the toast of this banquet. Could, could that be a sassy Jesus thing of giving the, the toast to Judas? Like what, what the significance behind that? Like, why was that so? I mean, you can't convince me otherwise. This is the last supper. Thanks to Judas. Oh, you know, I was going to challenge that, but yeah, that's That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I found this, Reading throughout this chapter, I mean, I kind of knew, like, Jesus had always kind of hinted at Judas portraying him, but, like, I didn't realize how much he actually called Judas out that night. And that's not only within this in this book, but in other, I'm going to mention it here in a second, but Matthew, there's something a bit more about continue. But how much Jesus actually calls Judas out. And, Without and, saying his name, though. Yeah, I mean, he does, and he knows who he's talking to. And, and of course, Judas kind of knows what's going on, too, especially uh, as we just read right here when Jesus hands him the dipped bread because... Just like the bread, Judas dipped. <laughs> he, left. he left. He said, uh-uh, I'm out of here. But <laughs> I hit the mic, I'm sorry. <laughs> Puns aside, though, I mean, he was gone because he knew. He kind of knew what was going on. Yeah. So I'm no Bible historian, <laughs> so there might be an answer to this. But if there is, I don't know it. So here, I'm going to ask. Now, it seems pretty obvious that, I mean, Jesus pretty much did everything except point at him and go, hey, this guy's the betrayer. This is the one that's going to, hey, this, Judas is the bad guy, guys. I found the imposter. Red's not doing tasks. Like, the, he, he's calling, I mean, he called Judas out. So, like, why didn't he get mobbed I think, right I, think, I think I've got an answer. I think I've got an answer. A possible answer. A possible answer. I'm not going to say it's the answer. But when, uh, look at this, the situation between John the Beloved and Peter. Because when Jesus makes this statement, Peter leans over to John and says, who is it? Like, can you ask Jesus who this might be? And this could be Peter being like, who is it so we can beat him up? Yeah. You know, it's like, I want to stop him. I want to kill him. This is my righteous anger coming. You know, big bang, boom, he's going, I want to beat this dude up. Let me grab the sword. Yeah. So this could be a way of Jesus being like, if I say his name, Peter's going to beat him up. And if if Peter beats him up, then he... Then my work will, well, I don't want to say it won't be done, but yet it, it'll it'll be done 
the plan won't go as it won't, as it should. Yeah, it won't go as smoothly in in uh, in, in a way that it, it says it here through scripture. So it might have been like it might have just complicated things if Jesus had been like, hey, "It's Judas." <laughs> but let me let me read Matthew chapter twenty six verse twenty five. I thought this was very interesting too. It doesn't say it in John, but here's another aspect, another another viewpoint. It's, it said it shows that something else that Judas uh, had said. So Judas in verse. 25 of chapter 26 of Matthew. Judas, his betrayer, replied, Surely not I, Rabbi. So he's, he's saying to Jesus, Surely it's not me. Jesus said, You have said it. And I'm like, it's. I think that's kind of a funny, sassy Jesus is like, You're the one that said it. Bro, did Judas just go by no means? Surely not I. By no means. Surely not. By Surely. no means. Not me. Absolutely not, depending on your version. But that, I mean, I feel like my, my question has been answered. And again, there might not be a concrete answer to this question, but I, I just want to put it out there just to make sure that we address it fully. Like Jesus clear as day said, it is who I give the dip bread to and then gives dip bread to Judas. Like how does that get misinterpreted? Like the thing is, there's no description. And I mean, he does yeah. immediately, immediately leave. So maybe I mean, he just books it out before he can get uh, figured out. By well, then the well, disciples said they don't understand. They think he's going to give money to the poor or get more. Yeah. Because Jesus says, yeah, could Jesus not be more clear. Well, could, well, this, this seems so personal because when John turns over, he goes to Jesus and says, hey, who is it? And Jesus, it basically, it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation that Jesus tells John, it's who I give the dip bread to. So maybe it's only that statement was, is, is that openly to the whole thing or is that a close statement to between Jesus and John? The, well, see, I'm, look, get it, get, it, get, it, get it right. The beloved disciple. Beloved disciple. If we go back to how informal it was and how close everyone was, even if it was exactly. one on one, I'm sure there was two or three others that still heard it, like probably Peter, who was right beside John. Um, I mean, scripture was saying they were pretty much laying on top of each other. Yeah. So, I mean, so I'm sure there was two or three others that probably heard it, even if it was one on one, let's just say that. So there was a couple others. There's something else I kind of want to touch on. It. I mean, I might be reaching for something. That's why I'm. I'm Reach for it. Well, we'll I'm going I'm to I'm I'm hit on it when we get there at the end of the chapter. Um, but I think the reason that they get confused about it is, is what we see right after that. When Jesus says, do what you do quickly, okay. what you do, do quickly. And it's because the, the disciples were getting ready for a big feast. It, we see that here literally, and I think it's 29. They, uh, he, Judas was in charge of the money as we've already established in the last chapter, stole the money, a whole different side point. Do what you do. What well, what did Judas do? He was in charge of the money. Judas was also in charge of buying things. With the feast coming up, the disciples are thinking, oh, Judas needs to go shopping. Judas is needing to go quick. Yeah, the scripture so, does confirm that. Yeah, so for them to to just blatantly accuse the disciples for not knowing, like, someone's supposed to... Uh, someone's supposed to betray me. Someone's supposed to rat me out. And it's who I give the bread to. But it's not just kind of blatantly. Jesus doesn't just blatantly say, who who I give the bread to betrays me. Well, he kind of does, but he kind of doesn't at the same time. I don't think it's as clear as what, what how you're trying to present Probably it. Probably not, because he, he could have he given the bread to everybody. I don't know. It's not stated. Well, everybody got bread. Yeah. The Jews got the dip bread. Yeah, so I mean... And like I said, it could be a one-way conversation between Jesus and John, or it could have been an open conversation. I don't know. But like, so what's the statement? Do you think the disciples thought he's going to get more food for the feast and, and the Passover? But what did Jesus mean by "what you do, Judas, do it quickly"? So what? What? What do you think? Why did he say that? What does that even mean? Making his deal. 
selling, getting, getting the money. But why quickly? What's the purpose of doing it quickly? Well, I don't have any professional commentary on that, but I mean, it is an example of Jesus making it clear that like, you think you're getting one over on me, but it's all according to plan. Like, I know what you're doing, but do it. Here's my stretch that I wasn't even talking about. Here's my stretch number two. I'm getting risky. Matthew, here mm. you go. Is this a it only, it only took well, Is this going to mix well with Jambalaya? Um, depends how you take it. If we, I'm going to read all of 27 and then see if y'all can get one of this. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Who is okay. Jesus really talking to? Personally, I kind of feel like he's talking to Satan. I know, I, and that's what I was getting at, too. Cause I, that's, that's why I asked the question. I, I totally agree with you, dude. <laughs> <laughs> you're, a, you're gonna do something with that, that yeah. broke it. You have to. I totally agree. I, spot on. I think. I, I think so. Too. I really think. I think so too. He's talking to Satan at that point. What you do, what you've done with Judas, you better do it quickly. And here's and there's a little thing I want to go with that because with Satan, Jesus being not Satan, with Jesus being the way that he is, he definitely hates his people to suffer. But he knows that Judas has already given himself over because. Mm -hmm. If we go back to what I've said, I don't know, however many minutes ago it was, Satan, or not Satan, Judas is already living a sinful life. He's already kind of proved he doesn't 100% give in to the whole Jesus theory. He's following around, yeah, and he might say, yeah, he's a good person, he's a prophet, but here he is stealing Jesus' money. He's taking and being greedy and doing all these things for himself. So at that point, he's already given himself over, so... Mm -hmm. I want to make sure I, I say that so that people, so that when I say Jesus is wanting Satan to work quickly, it's because for Judas's sake, for Judas's sake. And it's people will say, Oh, well, Jesus has already written Judas off. No, Judas kind of gave himself away. He, and, and I think this is, I, I, and I totally agree. And that's why I put in my notes here is that, uh, Judas thought, uh, Judas and, and the devil, obviously the devil working with Judas thought he was the master now. But Jesus saying this, he said, he says, you know, what's about to happen? You're about to lose this delusion that you have control over me to not only Judas, but yet the devil. And he's saying this is like, I've got something better. Just get it done. Get it over with. I'm going I want, I want, I want all this to be, you know, this, this bitter cup is bitter for me to take. This is a bitter cup for my disciples to take. And this is a heavy cup even for, for Judas himself to take. It's not a good cup because he does bear the wrath of God mm -hmm. and he does take devil upon himself. But yet Jesus is having is showing mercy upon everybody here. He's saying just just get this is over with. Yeah, I, I definitely think he's I, I agree. He's pitying almost or feeling sorry for Judas. Jesus still loved Judas. Oh yes, he still. And I think Judas. that's I why think he's, he's trying to say, do it quickly. I you agree. know, don't don't make. This person suffer. That's good. I, I like that, and, and that's one thing because. Even though Judas is the uh, the antagonist of the whole story of the situation, I thought it's a protagonist of this whole uh, dynamic between the disciples. But yet, to be honest, I mean, he was just as human, and it could have been. To be honest, it could have been me if I was in first century, mm -hmm. and it could have easily been me in this situation, and I could have fallen into the trap of the devil because Jesus didn't need Judas to achieve his goal. No, he could have taken Peter. He could have taken John. He could have taken he Andrew. Took, he, could, he, could, he could have taken any of the disciples. It could have been someone else. Jesus, oh, yeah. He did, it, they didn't even need yeah, to. It just happened to be the 
the path of least resistance. Yeah, it was someone. It was somebody very close and one of the chosen, but it was a very weak link. Yeah, and to be honest, if it wasn't a disciple, this whole his ministry probably could have lasted a little bit longer. You know, mm-hmm. if it was someone else outside or something like that, because this one, it like this was like an inside job. This is an inside job. So if it was, if you had all string, strong links within it, it probably been harder to break. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, this is had a lot of Peters around with swords. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but now that uh, that Judas is out of the picture within this uh, scene in Scripture, you have verses thirty-one through thirty-five. Jesus gives a, a little bit of a monologue uh, to the remaining disciples. It says in verse thirty-one. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him at once. Children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, where I am going you cannot come, so now I will tell you. I give you a new command. Love one another, just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Mm-hmm. So what I get primarily out of that, I mean, is that um, that last verse, verse 35, like him him making that confirmation, like, hey, if you want people to know that you follow me, then show show love. Or that I'm real. Exactly. The yeah. evidence that I've placed before you is not the works, but yet the works that I do through you, which is love. And you think? Do you think he's uh, saying that pointedly because of like what Judas is about to do? Like making it clear, like, hey, even even the people that don't seem worthy of love, give them love. Could, could, because because I mean we can see it within the the the, the way that Scripture is reading that every time Judas is made mention, there's some kind of apprehension of this guy was a this guy was the betrayer, because I mean they had no idea, and so it had to it had to hurt, it had to hurt them to know that one of their best friends betrayed the master. Yeah. And Jesus saying here, like knowing that um, these people are his disciples by their ability to love one another, like that speaks so true today as well, mm-hmm. which I mean, it's one of those things. It, I think we've established before uh, in the podcast that while Jesus made it simpler to follow him, he did by no means did he make it easier mm-hmm. uh, because I mean, love is such a difficult thing to do. I mean, we just tackled it with the idea of uh, washing politicians feet or washing Judas's feet. Like, Loving love can't be faked. Love is genuine. Love is what we're capable of because we have free will. We're not these autonomous little uh, robots that just do God's bidding. Like we, we are capable of hate, as unfortunate as that is. It's because of free will. Exactly. So that that love is what's going to set us apart because again, you can't fake that. Mm-hmm. It's 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 all genuineness. Like if you look at this person that you never you never never hear them say a hateful thing. They they love everyone around them. If someone wrongs them, they're they're quick to forgive, but they will they will hold accountable. They they will acknowledge wrongdoing but still react with love. Like that that's different. So I mean it, it goes back to Jesus says, I give you a new commandment. So this is, goes back to where Jesus was saying in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount that you know uh love your enemies. You know, you you've heard to love thy neighbor as thyself, but I say, I give you a new command to love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. And so when it's not also saying love one another, of course you're going to love your brothers, you know, which I mean, in a sense, we still bicker, but yet you're still going to love, you know, your family and whatnots. But yet what's a more upside down kingdom is to love those that hate you, you know? And so I think that's what, another thing that Jesus is getting at. It's, it's like, guys, for people to know that I'm the one that sent you, love those that persecute you, you know, love, 
everyone here. And I think that's another thing that I think Jesus is trying to get into the head of, uh, of the disciples. So let's look at verse 33 real quick in the in the in, in Peter, because I think this is an interesting thing too. So verse 33, it talks about you know where Jesus says, you know, where I go, no one can come. And we've heard the statement before in the past. He talks to the Jews and uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees, like, where I go, you can't go. And so Peter he asks, is like, no, where are you going, dude? I mean, we're going to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, Where I go, you cannot follow, but you will later. Hold on. Were you talking about 36 or 33? It says in 33, but Peter asked him in 36. Were you moving yeah. on? To finish out the last three verses. Yeah. So, okay. yeah. Okay, just make sure. So, yeah, in verse 36, Peter asked, you know, where are you going? So if you say you're going somewhere where I can't follow you, where are you going? And Jesus says, well, where I go, you cannot follow, but you will later. So it's like, okay, so I get more context clue, like I will later. So what does that mean? So this is, I think, referring to Peter's death in the future. And I want to give a little bit of church history here because I think history is important. So early church fathers are unanimous about where Peter died. And Peter was crucified in Rome during the persecution of Nero. And one is, Nero is one of the, the, the Roman uh, leaders that hated Christians. You know, set them on fire, put them in the arena to be eaten by lions, you know, just ruthless to Christians. But tradition says that his wife was martyred first, and as she was being led out to die, Peter comforted her with the words, Remember the Lord. And when Peter's turn came, he begged his crucifiers to crucify him head downward, feeling he was not worthy to die exactly the way that his Lord died. So that's church history. Church tradition mm -hmm. has stated that, and I think that's, that's a fantastic story and just in itself. Between him and his wife. But yet, I think this is, you know, you will follow me later. You will follow me in death later. Because we got to understand that all of the disciples were martyred except one. Anyone know who that is? The beloved. The beloved. John. <laughs> so he gets special treatment there. So uh, I, th I think that's, 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 that's important too. It's like, you know, are we willing to follow Christ even to death? You know, are we willing to follow him to death, to the grave itself. Well, this sort of kind of related, but a little off topic. Uh, and honestly, I wouldn't be against uh, covering topics such as this in like a future series slash episode of the podcast. I find it very strange that the secular world has taken that, that cross of, of Peter, that upside down cross, and made it to, to represent like evil. Like that that's used commonly in like uh, oh yeah sa and satanic satanic, sa satanic imagery like mm -hmm. that that upside down cross is used for that when in reality it was I mean Peter's act of humility in mm -hmm. a lot of ways yeah I think it would be a fun one to go through like different martyrs and like of like how, like how each disciple died or yeah or go back to Old Testament look at a couple because I, I was I was thinking more along the lines of like misused uh, religious imagery but that I mean would that be would be a good one too yeah, I mean e equally good series so. Peter, he arrogantly says, you know, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. And this shows his arrogance and his pride and saying, you know, I'm willing to do this. But yet Jesus, he goes back and counter-ducks that. He says, you know, bro, no, you won't. He basically, what does he say? He says, oh, will you now? Yeah, verse 38, the, the last verse of the chapter, he says, uh, will you lay down your life for me? I assure you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. And um, that, in some of the other uh, Gospels, it doesn't 
show the follow up here in John, but like Peter, he he challenges that. Like imagine having the audacity when when Jesus says you're gonna do something to be like, hey, Jesus, no. you think you know me? No, oh, you yeah, know Jesus, you don't know me. I know me. Like that. I mean that. It's so easy to just kind of make fun of Peter in that instance because I mean for one, like but we do, he, he screws up. Yeah, exactly. But gut wrenching. Just the futility of the statement that he's making there, like claiming that he knows himself better than Jesus does. Mm-hmm. Here's my semi, not, not stretch, but here's, here's my thing I was wanting to bring up that right there, Jesus saying, you know, or Peter saying, you know, I'm not going to, I would die for you. I would do everything for you, Jesus. And then Jesus saying, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. That right there shows that Satan could have easily taken Peter. Oh yeah. 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 The fact that even when, Jesus is still alive and on the cross that Peter just straight up denies him. And it doesn't record others doing it. And they might have as well, but the significance of Peter doing it when he's supposed to be, you know, kind of like the chosen leader or whatever. And the fact that he would just blatantly deny Christ during such a short amount of period so many times, like Judas just so happened to be the one that was in sin. And, and going to about what we said earlier about Jesus knowing, it's like the devil wanted you, Peter. Mm-hmm. And it shows that he knows what's lurking in the darkness parts and the weaknesses of our hearts, for sure. And it's just it's just sad to see that, you know, someone so close like Judas and someone close like Peter could have easily fallen into that trap of the devil taking over and denying Christ altogether. And how, how easy could that be for us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I'm gonna be honest. I, I got a I got a weird feeling that, that Jesus is gonna come out on top uh, when all is said done. Like I, I, I don't know. I, I have a I'm, I'm rooting for the underdog suspicion. here. I'm rooting for the underdog. I, I think I think Jesus has <laughs> got this in the bag. I, I got a I got a pretty good feeling. But uh, uh, that's that's chapter 13. It ends kind of on a somber note there. Very humbling chapter. Oh yeah, yeah definitely. It, it's one of those chapters that makes you look in the mirror. But definitely. Uh, but next week we'll be. We'll be learning more from Jesus. Jesus has a lot to say in the next chapter that uh, we'll go over next week. Um, a lot, of, a lot of teachings about prayer. A lot of teachings about the Trinity. It'll be a fun to jump into that. But that's for next week. Um, so that that's it for this week. So as always, our social media links are in the show notes. You can email us. Let us know what, what we're wrong about. What we say too much of. What we don't say enough about. Um, but regardless, that's the episode. Tanner, how about you give us some magic words? He's out. I suppose that works.